Good morning and welcome to our Sunday morning service. It's great to have you with us, whether you're um, a regular attender at our church or whether you're someone who's just discovered us um, during this lockdown period. It's really good to have you with us so that we can come together and learn more about our relationship with God and to worship him as well. So it's good to have you here. I'm going to begin this service by leading a short time of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that during this lockdown period we've been able to meet together in this way. Father, thank you that um, you are a God who is above any restrictions, above any limitations, and no one, no one can say to you, you cannot go here, you cannot go there. Instead, you are present with all of us, wherever we are at the moment, as we, as we sit at home, as we, whether we're with family or whether we're on our own. Father, we know that you are meeting with us right now. You're present with us through your Holy Spirit. We give thanks for that and we praise your name. So, Father, bless us now as we, as we share together in your word, as we read scripture and as we have a think about what it is that you are communicating to us this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray for your presence to be with us this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, it's another week that's passed, another week where we've been, um, been shut inside our own homes, occasionally maybe going outside for some exercise or, um, or for some shopping or something like that. But most of the time we're, we're in the same four walls. And um, I'm sure some people are going stir crazy by now, um, but hopefully you're coping. And I don't know about you, but I've quite enjoyed following the good news story this week of um, uh, Captain Tom Moore. This guy who set off to walk a few laps of his back garden, which is decent sized by the looks of things, um, he set out to raise a thousand pounds and currently he's raised over 30 million pounds because people have got behind it. People have said, hey, look, let's, let's support this. Let's make a big deal of it. Let's bring some good news into the world at the moment. Um, he's, he's received a promotion to Colonel. He's um, received an England cricket cap, which is no mean feat. And uh, he, um, he's even hit, reached a number one single. He's recorded a number one single um, alongside Michael Ball. And I thought, that's, that's brilliant. You've got this, this old man who probably thought his best days were behind him. And suddenly he finds himself with a UK number one single alongside Captain Tom Moore. You see, this is a good news story. This is a story that, that warms the heart. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at another story. It's a story that Jesus told, one of his, his parables. Um, some of you will know it as the parable of the prodigal son. Some of you will know it as the par parable of the lost son. Some of you will know it as the parable of the loving father. Whatever we call it, there's no doubt that this is a story of good news coming through a bad situation. So if you've got a Bible with you, um, then please turn to Luke's Gospel in the New Testament. That's uh, in chapter 15. You'll find, beginning at verse 11, the story of the prodigal son. So if you haven't got a Bible, please feel free to press pause, um, go and turn the house upside down, looking for that Bible that you've got, you know you've got sitting in a drawer somewhere. Go and find it and open it up and, and read this account with me. The parable begins with Jesus teaching us about God's relationship with us, how God wants us to behave and how God feels about us. So Luke 15, starting at verse 11. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. 
The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth on wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went off to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he said to one of the servants, he asked, he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but is now found. Now, this parable has been preached on thousands, tens of thousands, possibly millions of times in the past. It's one of those parables where every time we read it, we can almost allow ourselves to to, to gloss over because we can become so familiar. But that's the trouble, isn't it, with parables sometimes? We know them. We are very familiar with them. In fact, we can become over familiar with them. We can get to the point where we we read what we think it says rather than focusing on what it actually says. There are so many different angles. There are so many different characters. There are so many different lessons to be learned from this parable that that I could spend the next two days preaching on it nonstop and still not exhaust the possibilities. but, But rest assured, I won't be doing that today. Let's just begin, though. By thinking about what happens, by just running through this story and clarifying our understanding of what's going on. So to begin with, there's a man with two sons. 
Now these two sons would have worked on his estate, they would have been expected to stick around the family home, um, working, supporting the father, until either the day came that the father um, handed over his property to his sons and said, I'm, I'm too old, retiring in effect. Um, the sons would then look after him, but they would have the responsibility um, for his property, his income. Or he would keep working until the day he died. He would be running the estate until eventually he died and the two sons would get their inheritance. Now, traditionally, the eldest son would get two thirds of the inheritance and the youngest son would get one third. We don't know what motivates the younger son. We don't know what causes him to say to his father one day, I want my inheritance now. You see, that could have been a choice of the father. The father could have said to his sons, I want to give you your inheritance now. But that's not what happens here. The younger son, the, the, the lesser of the two sons, the one who has absolutely no right whatsoever to speak to his father like this, goes to his father and says, give me my share of the estate. We don't know if there's been a family rift, we don't know if he's ambitious. We don't know if he's just been tempted by the world around him, which has caused him to be dissatisfied with, with who he is, with where he is in life. Now, some commentators suggest that this would have been like a dagger to the heart of the father. In effect, by asking for what, was, what would have been his inheritance, some suggest that the son is saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I want life to be as though you are dead. I want my inheritance. I want to leave here. I don't want you in my life anymore. Now, actually, when we look at Scripture, there's, there's nothing directly to suggest that. There's nothing directly to suggest that there was a falling out between the brothers or between father and son. But what we do know is that this was a break from tradition. This was a break from the way that things were normally done. Something happened here. But Jesus doesn't give us that detail because, frankly, he's not trying to give us a, a first century version of episode of EastEnders or anything like that. He is he's teaching us. The mechanics of what went on between in that family, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Jesus wants us to be thinking always about how we, how our lives fit into these stories. So the son gets his way. The father divides his property. The son goes off and squanders his wealth on wild living. Again, we're not given detail of, of quite what that wild living looked like. Later on, of course, the, the elder brother accuses his, his younger brother of, um, of using prostitutes, but we don't, we don't know that. We don't know how he knew that. But certainly, he squandered his wealth he wasted his wealth. He threw away his start in life, the opportunity that his father's, his father's gift had, had given him. After he'd spent everything, after he'd enjoyed maybe a few months, maybe a few years of wild living, having fun, being the, the popular guy, the one who 
who was throwing money around like it was going out of fashion, the one that everyone loved, the life and soul of the party. After a couple of years of doing that, he suddenly realised it was gone. It was gone. Everything that he had been enjoying was temporary. There was nothing permanent. And as soon as the money ran out, so the lifestyle stopped, suddenly the friends stopped coming round. Suddenly when he walked into a room, he wasn't welcomed with open arms, but instead he received a cold shoulder. And to make matters worse, a severe famine hits the whole country and he began to be in need. So this youngest son, who, who must have seemed to the people around him like he had the whole world in his hand at one point, suddenly he has fallen lower than he could ever have imagined. Life must have, he must have felt like life had dealt him a pretty rotten hand at that point, but of course it was all of his own making. He'd been given this opportunity and he'd thrown it away. He tried to do everything under his own power rather than relying on his father. And he pretty, pretty quickly learned a very harsh lesson that that was not a wise move. In the same way, Jesus is telling us that we have a father. We have a father who offers us an opportunity, an opportunity to work for him, to dedicate our lives to him on the promise that one day there will be this fantastic inheritance coming our way. Not on this earth, but in heaven. And yet the world is full of people who have said, not interested. For whatever reason, they've turned their back on God. For whatever reason, they've said, I don't even believe in you. I want to live my life as if you don't exist. I want to go off and I'll take the money you give me. I'll take, the, I'll take the job you give me. I'll take the house you give me. I'll take the partner you give me. I'll take the, the fun and the good stuff. I'll have the holidays and I'll have all the, all the trappings that, that come with uh, the lifestyle that I want. But I don't want you. Jesus is demonstrating to us here how, how hurt God feels when we live our lives like that. When we live our lives in a way that says, I just want to cut you out. I want to abandon you. I just want to act as if you don't even exist. In my mind, you are dead. God is not beyond emotion. God is not beyond feeling. And God feels hurt, just as the Father does in this parable. In the same way, when we find ourselves hitting rock bottom, when we've enjoyed the wild living, when we've enjoyed a time of, of success and then suddenly things don't go our way or maybe we suddenly find that we're, we're faced with a health issue that we cannot deal with or a loved one is, is suddenly lost and we're struggling with grief or maybe we're made redundant, lose our job. Whatever it happens to be, when we suddenly find ourselves in those low moments, that's when a lot of people suddenly call out to God suddenly say, well, if there's a God, where is he? And you want to say to them, well, he was there, but you, you, you turned away. You decided that you wanted to act as if he didn't exist, and so 
that's how things are for you. That's the choice you've made. That's the choice you've made. The son in this story, he gets so desperate that he has to go to a local landowner, probably someone who had similar sort of assets as his father had. The son goes and asks for a job. But of course, there weren't many jobs at that time. There were no crops. They were in the middle of a famine. Crops were failing. On a farm, there was very little to do. But this guy takes pity on the son and says, look, I've got some pigs. My pigs need feeding. If you're happy to do it, there's some, uh, there's some pig food. Go out into the fields, find my pigs and, and feed them. I'll pay you. And the son has no choice. He's so desperate, he has to go and do that. And so he does. Now, in Jewish culture, pigs were seen as an unclean animal. And so, for this son to have to go and feed the pigs when he couldn't even fill his own stomach, in effect, he was, by feeding them, he was putting these unclean animals in a better position in life than he himself was in. This demonstrates to the, the, the Jewish listeners that Jesus was speaking to, it would really have hit home to them. Wow, this guy hit rock bottom. Things could not have got any worse for this bloke. The son looks at the pig food and is severely tempted to eat what the pigs were supposed to be eating because he has nothing he is starving and no one would give him anything. Eventually, he looks around and thinks, this is ridiculous. This is crazy. How did things ever get this bad? How did I get here? My father has got servants who have got food to spare. And I'm sitting here feeding pigs while starving. That's not right. I'm going back to my father. I know what I'll do. I know what I'll do. I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to take whatever, whatever wrath is awaiting me. I'm going to face whatever music I need to face. And I'm going to say to him, look, I, I screwed up. I get it. I know. Don't keep banging on about it. I know. I've suffered. But look, I'm still your son. Please, please, let me do this one thing. Let me, let me work for you as a servant, because I'm starving. It's important to note here in this parable, the son's motivation for going back to his father. He doesn't suddenly have a change of heart and think, oh, I treated dad really badly. I better go back, I love him, I really miss him. It's got nothing to do with that. It's not a case of, actually, I really should be supporting my brother. I should be working alongside my older brother, you know. I should be keeping the family name going, the family business going. Um, I've got a loyalty. I've got a duty to go back to. It's nothing like that. You see, we can make the mistake of thinking that the, the, son, the son is motivated by love to go back to his father. He misses his dad. No, he doesn't. Read the parable. How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? Here I am, starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
Make me like one of your hired men. This guy's motivated by his stomach. He's thinking of food. That's why he goes back to his father. He wants a meal. Don't make the mistake of thinking that he suddenly suddenly yearns his father's embrace or anything like that. This guy just wants to fill his stomach. It's a bit like when, when we go through those hard times. When we, having never prayed, having never read scripture, we suddenly find ourselves calling out. We find ourselves having tested every other option in life. And we get to the point where we, we call out to God. And for a lot of people, they do that. They, when they do that, they're calling out to a God they don't even believe in. This son here, he's not motivated by love for his father. He's motivated by desire to fill his stomach. So he goes and starts this journey. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. The son on that journey, I, I have a feeling, was probably a bit reticent, a bit, a bit worried about the sort of reception that he was going to receive. Maybe he had moments of doubt. Maybe he thought, is this really a good idea? What if, what if dad sends a mob of servants to do me in? This could be, this could be nasty. How angry is he? Is he really going to want, to want to know me? You know, I've said that I want to live as if he doesn't exist. Maybe he wants to live as if I don't exist. Is he even going to recognise me? I've lost weight. But he goes. And as he's tentatively approaching the farm where his father is, we're told that his father sees him. His father is the first person to spot the son. He's looking out for him. I wonder how many days the father had spent standing on his veranda, looking out across his driveway, thinking, please come home. Please come home, my son. I want you home. This is where you should be. This is what's right for you. Please come home. We don't know. We don't know if that happened. We don't know how often that happened. We don't know if it was just a coincidence that the, the father happened to be looking up the driveway the moment the son came round the corner. But what we do know is that he didn't feel the need to go and rebuke his son. He didn't turn his back. He wasn't filled with anger. He was filled with compassion. Love came flooding through the father's heart. To the point where the father did something which, which men in the Middle East at that time never, ever did. It was the most undignified scene. There was probably servants trying to, to stifle a laugh as they saw their master having hiked up his gown, showing his bare legs, going running down the driveway to get to his son as quickly as he could. This was a completely undignified act. He must have looked hilarious, must have looked ridiculous. But the father wants to get to the son. The second that he sees that the son is showing a sign of returning, the father is there, bang, straight away. There is no waiting. He could have just stood, in, stood on his own front doorstep and waited for the son to come to him. But no, the father goes to the son. In the same way, when we turn to God, in those moments when we've hit rock bottom and we think, God, where are you? Come on. God answers in those moments. Not always in a discernible way, not always in a way that we immediately recognise, maybe not even in a way that we want, 
But God does answer us. The number of situations that we hear about where, where the odds are stacked against someone and nothing's going right for them and then we come together as a church or as individuals to pray for them and suddenly things change. You see, prayer, prayer does get answered. God does answer prayer. He does respond to us. We do have this, this communication with him. But prayer isn't just a list of our demands. Instead, prayer is just an expression of, of how much we want to see God working in our lives. How much we want to experience the power of God around us. And we have to be prepared to accept whatever form that may take. But what we can be assured of is that God is a God of compassion. God is a God who comes running to our aid when we turn back to him. So the son walks up the driveway. He is he's met by this, this figure, his father coming running towards him, who embraces him, wraps his arms around him, plants kisses on his cheek. The father is overwhelmed with compassion and joy. And the son says to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But look at the, the response. The response of the father. As soon as he hears those words, words of repentance, words acknowledging I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I'm not worthy to be your son. As soon as he hears the son acknowledging those things, it's as if a switch has been flicked and suddenly we're starting again. You've got to that point. You've acknowledged you're not worthy. You've acknowledged that you've sinned. You've acknowledged that you need to repent. So great. That stops now. That's done. Now let's have a fresh start together. How does the father signify the fresh start? Well, look at the response. As soon as those words have been said, he says to his servant, bring out the best robe and put it on him. In other words, the, the rags, the filth that was adorning the son up to that point, suddenly the father says, cover that. Let's put the best robe on him. We're going to turn him from a beggar into a prince. We're going to dress him as in, in the finest clothing that we have because the rags tell the story of sin. The robes are going to cover it up because the robes can. In, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes about us being clothed in Christ when we're baptised. And that's what happens, isn't it? We are clothed in him. Our old selves, no matter how scummy they were, no matter how embarrassing they were, no matter, no matter how low we, 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 may have, we may have sunk to, suddenly, when we turn to God, we're given royal robes to wear. We are clothed in Christ, and there is no better robe that we can put on than that. So the son is given these fantastic robes. But it goes further than that. When the son says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
the father says, put a ring on his finger. Now, what that meant was it would have been a seal. In those days when correspondence was sent from, from one landowner to another, it wasn't signed with a signature. It was sealed, a wax seal. And the ring that was worn on the finger would have carried the unique wax seal of his father. So what that meant was suddenly he was given authority. Suddenly he was given back his, his position that the father had always wanted him to hold. Suddenly, that by, by wearing this ring, wherever he goes, he is re- he's the representative of his father in that place. He carries the power and the authority. He represents the family of his father. Now, these rings were not given out to servants. They, they were, they were, there were very, very few of them. They were for family only. But it was a permanent thing. He was given this. You permanently now have the authority and the power of my name wherever you go. As long as you wear that ring, it signifies that you have my seal of approval. So the son is restored back to his former position when he receives this ring. And then finally, finally, when the son says, Make me as one of your hired servants. Remember, this was all about getting food. This was all he wanted, a job as a servant, because he knew that at least he'd have food. The father says no. He says to his servant, put shoes on his feet. Now, slaves in those days went barefoot. Shoes were a luxury. The only time that shoes were worn was either by someone with the wealth to afford them, or by someone who was going on a long journey, someone who had work to do. You see, when he, when he puts these sandals on his son's feet, the father is effectively saying, you, you have my resources. You go the path that I want you to go. I want you to work for me. I want you to travel for me. I want you to go and, and walk and take my seal of approval where you go. By wearing these sandals, you commit to following the path that I have for you. And so, and so the son is reconciled to the father. Now, of course, we've got a problem at the end of this parable. And the problem is the older brother. Because the older brother is furious. When he finds out what's happened, he's absolutely furious. His father says, what's up? What's the matter with you? Come to the party. And the brother says, no, I have worked my backside off for you for year after year after year. You've never even given me so much as a goat to celebrate with my mates. And yet that scumbag of a little brother, don't you remember how he treated you? He goes off, he squanders everything. He comes back with not a penny to his name and you kill the fatted calf and you throw a party. Like this is something to be proud of. I'm not celebrating with you. And the father says, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate this and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
Now, for some of us today, we'll be able to identify with different characters in that story. For some people, you'll be able to identify with with the father, with the pain that the father had to deal with, the hurt that he experienced, and then the compassion that he experienced as well. Others will identify with the son. Maybe you've lived a life where you've been in a position of great wealth, great privilege, and then suddenly the walls have come crashing down around you and you found yourself turning back to God and, and having a, a renewed appreciation of what it means to be a son of God. Maybe you're like the older brother. Maybe there's someone you know who you look at them and think, you go to church every week and yet I know who you really are. But for many of us, there's a different character in that story. A character which isn't mentioned in the parable, but we know they existed. I just want to finish today with a story I heard a couple of years ago about um, some friends of ours who moved into a street. They'd been living in the same area for about 40 years and then they moved house and um, they got to this street and there was, it was a lovely street, good neighbourhood, nice families and there was one family up the road with two little girls and they used to play out on their scooters and they were, they were lovely and funny and cute and it was, it was great. But um, as these girls grew up, um, one, of them, one of them went off the rails, got in with the wrong crowd, had a string of boyfriends that the parents didn't approve of, got into, um, got into trouble, started experimenting with drugs, started drinking too much. And when she was in her mid to late teenage years, there was some awful rows in the street the neighbours could hear and they began to think what a shame this is this is bringing the neighbourhood down eventually um, the day came when a police car turned up and this girl was taken from the house turned out she got involved in petty theft drug taking and she was sent to a young offenders institution the neighbours talked the neighbours really sympathised with the parents. They were nice people. They didn't deserve that. What a shame. But at the same time, the neighbourhood was a lot quieter without her around. It was a more pleasant place to live. And so the neighbours kind of felt that the parents were better off without her. And then news got round that at the age of 16, this girl had given birth to a baby and no one quite knew who the father was. Again, Curtains twitched, neighbours talked, and it was decided that the parents were definitely better off without her around. And then one day, a police car pulled up on the driveway. The neighbours were standing, craning their necks to see what was going on. And they suddenly realised she's been released. She's been let out. Wow. She gets out of the police car with this bundle of rags in her arms, which evidently was the newborn baby. And before she's even got to the gate, her mum and dad come running down the pathway. They wrap their arms around her and they, they, they're so pleased to see her. There's tears streaming down their cheeks. They welcome her. And the neighbours are on the phone to each other. I can't believe it. After what she did to them, they, they're welcoming her. That's, that's, that's outrageous. She needs a good talking to. She needs to be, to be taught a few lessons. 
She can't treat people like that. This is terrible. And she's messed up her life. You see the baby? What a mistake. What a fool. Well, it serves her right. You make your bed, you lie in it. While the neighbours are on the phone, there's a rattle of the letterbox. When they come off the phone, they go to the doormat and they open an envelope with their name on it. And it's an invitation. And it turns out that the mother and father are throwing a party to celebrate the fact that the daughter's back. The neighbours look at one another and they feel really awkward because they don't want to go to that party. They don't want to celebrate the return of, of someone who's shown such disdain for her own parents, for someone who's thrown away a very promising start in life, for someone who had it all but then decided that they knew better, would go and squander it all on wild living and eventually wound up low, at the lowest point that she could possibly imagine. She's got a criminal record. She's got a, a fatherless child. She's only 16. Where, what's there to celebrate? Would you go to that party? Would you celebrate? You see, this parable is all about grace. This parable is all about the grace of God that knows no limitations, that knows no boundaries, a God that will never shut us out, that will never abandon us, will never forsake us. Because one of the most difficult things for a lot of Christians to deal with is that God would be at that party. In fact, he's the one who would send the invitation. He's the host. He's the father who has welcomed back the son. Sometimes we can make the mistake in church of judging of being self-righteous, of comparing ourselves to others. But we must remember that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's only through his grace and his love and his mercy that we can go to that party. So let's remember that. And let's make sure that in every walk of life, every conversation that we have in the coming days, weeks, months, every time that in the future when lockdown is over that we meet people and hear of their past, let's not judge. Let's try and be Christ-like in the way that we talk to people, in the way that we experience people. We are the ones who wear those robes, who carry that, that seal, we are the ones who represent our God wherever we go. And if we get that wrong, if we abuse the privilege that God's given us, then we damage the kingdom that he seeks to build. We put people off, we turn people away, we make our churches unattractive, we make our faith unattractive. We've got great responsibility to go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28 tells us that when Jesus gave the Great Commission to his disciples. But we're only going to achieve that 
if people feel comfortable worshipping alongside us, if people feel that they can be honest and open, true to who they are, without fear of, of judgment, without fear of the curtain twitching in the neighbourhood as the neighbours gossip. Instead, let's show ourselves to be a loving and welcoming community in any way that we possibly can. And let's make sure that when we're invited to celebrate the, the saving of a new Christian, we do it in style. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you sent your son into this world to live amongst us and to teach us how you want us to live. And Father, we thank you that as we read the parables that Jesus gave to those very first listeners, even today we still find layer upon layer of learning waiting for us. Father, we pray that as we've read this parable this morning, each individual one of us has, has received something from it, something that you've wanted us to receive. Father, we pray that whatever the message that you wanted us to receive from it has been, has been received. Father, we know that you're present with us throughout all that's going on at the moment. And Father, we give thanks when we see stories of good news. But Father, we pray also that you will help us to, to study your word, to deepen our understanding of you, to, to further our relationship with you. And to come once again to a new appreciation of just how much a privilege it is to call ourselves children of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So have a great week. Um, thanks to all of our NHS frontline workers who are going, really going through the mill at the moment. We are praying for you and um, we, are, we are with you. Um, we, we hope that if you have any needs that we can help with, um, whoever you are, please get in touch with us. And if we can help, then we would, we would love to. Um, we're praying for each and every one of you. And it's a privilege to be ministering to you through these times. Be blessed and join us again next week. Bye for now.